This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Happy Oscar week to you all. I'm Katie Rich, and I'm here with Rebecca Ford. Hi. We have two interviews for today as uh, Oscar voting wraps up and the Oscars themselves loom. And uh, to start with, Rebecca, you got to close out your long season of talking to maybe every Oscar nominee. I'll have to run the numbers on that. Um, But talking to one of the most charming ones and still charming and energetic despite the exhausting last few months, uh, Colin Farrell seems to be doing great. I'm so glad this was my last interview because he (laughs) is just such a joy to talk to. He was on the set of The Penguin, which is his new uh, HBO Max TV show, and he was going to start shooting the next day when we did the interview. So I think he was an interesting place where he's just kind of ready for award season to wrap up and to focus on, as he says, the work um, of being an actor. So, uh, yeah, it it was great to chat with him one more time about Banshees. Yeah, and he was just kind of, it seemed like so thoughtful and, you know, grateful for the experience that he's had, but not kind of clouding his vision. You know, he's been working for such a long time. He certainly knows, you know, as much as anyone that awards can change things, but not change things. Um, It made me even more excited to see more work from him, which I didn't know was possible. I thought I was already as excited as I could get. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting to hear him talk about how this being a first time Oscar nominee has been easier for him because the whole cast and crew basically got nominated. Um, so he's been sort of traveling with them. Mm-hmm. Whereas you look at someone, you know, he used Brendan Fraser as an example where it really feels like, you know, that fil- there are other nominations for that film, but it really rests on his shoulders as the lead actor. So I thought that was a really interesting perspective on this whole journey for him. Yeah, you imagine like three more movies with the Banshees of Inisherin cast resulting from all this time they've spent together. Like they've, they've clearly benefited so much from, from traveling as a pack. Yeah, I feel like they got to make it a, a trilogy. There's got to be one more Brendan Gleeson, Colin Farrell, Martin McDonough uh, collaboration, maybe in another 10 or 15 years down the road. Let's hope for it. Um, let's hear your conversation with Colin Farrell. I'm so excited to welcome Oscar-nominated star of the Banshees of Inishirin, Colin Farrell today. Hi, Colin. 
Hi, Rebecca Ford. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for doing this. I know we're in the, the crazy last days of this cycle. so uh, The I final death battle, as they say. <laughs> but you must be super busy because, from I mean, I saw you at the SAG Awards just a couple of days ago, but now you're back on set for The Penguin. What is life like right now? It's uh, it's it's more, and I say this not by way of complaint, just observation. It's more chaotic than I than I would like, or than I'm used to. Um, but I am so thrilled to be close to the end of it. Just so I can focus on on the penguin now. I I got to New York, Rebecca. After we did the SAGs on Sunday, I flew Monday morning, and I start shooting tomorrow morning. And it's going to be like a four a.m. pickup, just so we can get into the makeup because it's about a three or four hour makeup every morning. Wow. But I'm super excited. And then I can just focus on, you know, because that's the, the the great joy of all this is actually the work. You know, this last few months has really been extraordinary and it's been so, it's been so heartening to be able to share it with the whole Banshees crew and the other crews from other films that, that we've crossed paths with and stuff. But I'm really excited to get back to the working part as an actor, you know. Yeah. So you'll come back from there for Oscar weekend and then yeah I will I will what will I do I'll shoot a week on the Penguin and then I'll fly back to yeah back to LA at the end of next week do the Oscars with my plus one who is my 13 year old son Henry oh, and uh, yeah he's looking forward to it and we're both wearing we're both wearing velvet tuxes so yeah that'll be a laugh and it'll be the last push across the line and, and just try and celebrate the day and enjoy it and take any kind of thoughts of winning and all that stuff off the table. Do your kids keep you humble? I mean, what do they say about what's going on with you this year, your first Oscar nomination? If anything, they do the opposite. If anything, they tell me to not to do the opposite to humble. They don't they don't keep me arrogant. They um I can be a bit kicking over sandcastles mm-hmm. about the whole thing, about the whole award season stuff, you know, and I remember my boy came back from school one day and he had heard I don't know, I think it was, I won the National Board of Review or something. And he said it to me and I went, oh yeah. I said, yeah. I said, yeah, it's cool. And he went, oh yeah, 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 it's cool. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> oh, dad. He said, and he went, come on, enjoy it. For God's sake, just enjoy it. And I was like, okay, all right. I'll lean into that wisdom. And it was actually, you know, as easy as it was what he said, it, his point was, you know, get over taking it. You can take all this stuff too serious by trying really hard to not take it serious. Mm. There's a bit of a trap there. So I know as a human being, I know what's really important to me in life. And it's not what's happened in the last six months. So knowing that it just frees me up to actually just enjoy that it is also a really lovely time. And, you know, it is my first time doing all this. And I've been working as an actor and very fortunate for 25 years. So just trying to enjoy it all. So my boys, yeah, I mean, as a as a human being, do they? Yeah, sure. Being a parent and, and realizing how powerless you are in some of the most important areas of, of your world and trying to support them on the, their journey is a constantly humbling experience. But, uh, but yeah, they they do a little bit of the, the opposite as well. They They bring to me a more expansive way to look at the world also you know that's so sweet and and as you said you've been on the journey we're going to get into making the film but you've been on the sort of promotional journey since the premiere in venice where you won the best actor award and uh i'm curious from that part i i find that people often learn a little bit more about themselves their filmmaker their co-stars in this part of the process as well doing all these sort of 
conversations and spending all this time together. Have you learned anything new about uh, Martin or? Not really. I mean, we, you know, I've known Kerry Condon for 22, 23 years. Mm -hmm. I've known Brendan for 15 years. I've known Martin for 18 years. So we're all kind of square with each other in that way. Um, I mean, you continue to learn about yourself every day and the people that you meet, of course. But what has been interesting, honestly, is spending time with the other lads from other films, you know, is listening to listening to a little bit of Austin's story and listening to Brendan Fraser's story. And I didn't really have much time with Bill Nye. Um, doing the roundtable, the Hollywood Reporter roundtable was kind of cool um, because... Yeah, we just got to listen to each other's stories and and meeting them boys and and listening to their origins and and their intentions and what they gleaned from the work as an actor and what they gleaned from this period of of award ceremonies and stuff has been really lovely. Crossing paths with them has been really really lovely. But our crew, there's just been a massive amount of comfort and and to celebrate all this stuff has been a much easier lift because we've had to the opportunity to share it together. Like if I was on my own in this, if I had done a film and I was nominated for it and it was just me from the cast and there was nothing else and there was no writer, if that kind of thing happened. Like if I was like, and I don't know if it's this way for Brendan, but I think it would be for me if I was Brendan Fraser and I was, you know, there's a couple of people being nominated, but it's it's mostly him kind of out front, you know. We've yeah. been we've been like the Traveling Wilburys. You know what I mean? It's been myself, Kerry, Barry, Brendan, Martin, Graham Broadbent, the producer. Like we've all been circling each other now and meeting up in London and meeting up in New York and meeting up in L.A. So it's been wonderful. It kind of takes the pressure off of just uh, the pressure that at times can feel like self-celebration hasn't been anywhere in the arena at all because we've just been looking to our left and we have someone from the crew looking to our right and have someone from the crew. So that's been that's been really one of the most beautiful parts. And I was saying, me and Brendan were talking about it the other day after SAG, we'll miss it. Not the not the accolades and not the attention and all, all that, but we'll miss the kind of, because it was a beautiful time making this film. It really was. It, there was such an extraordinary sense of collaboration and community between our cast and crew and the people on the two islands we shot. It was very magical the whole summer last year in Ireland that we did this film. So we've had kind of an extension of that magic by virtue of being with each other for this five or six months. So we'll miss that. We'll miss seeing each other. I'll certainly miss seeing them. So take me back to that because I'm curious if after working with Martin on in Bruges and then Seven Psychopaths, did he come back to you throughout that time about something else or no I'd see Martin I'd see him through the years like he's brilliant he's a bit of a social butterfly he always if he's in town if he's in New York he'll reach out to the people that are friends of his in New York if he's in Dublin the same if he's in LA the same so through the years anytime he's in LA we grab a bite to eat and stuff and about seven years ago he said I've done something I want to send it to you and Brendan to have a look at it and I knew he was because he had said as much he was super tentative about getting me and Brendan back together. He wanted to get us back together and I certainly wanted to work with Brendan and Martin again because it was such a joy the first time in Bruges. Um, but he was nervous about, you know, he felt that in Bruges had enough love, enough of a cachet of love out in the film loving community that he didn't want to get me and Brendan together unless it was something that he felt incredibly strongly about and that it was different enough and etc. So he said, listen, I have this thing, have a look at it and he emailed me and Brendan, hey fellas, Here's this script I was working on. Have a look, tell me what you think. I read it and I loved it. I thought it was brilliant because it kind of was like 
a mediocre Martin McDonough script is better than 95% of the shit you'll read <laughs> as an actor. <laughs> right. um, Brendan thought the script was great, but didn't couldn't understand his character, couldn't find a way in, couldn't find a reason for the severity with which he cuts ties with me. Um, my character was much cooler in the earlier version. There was a big gun shoot at the, at the end. I died bleeding out with a gun in my hand in a chair. The character had, had a bit of moxie in him. And mm. then... Martin said, nah, I, I don't like it. I'm going to, maybe I'll rework it. And about four years after he sent it to us originally, we get another email. Hey, lads, I threw everything out except for the first five pages. Uh, tell me what you think of this. And it was the script that we ended up shooting last summer. And to be honest with you, um, I read it and I was like, oh, no, where's the the cool, where's the, I kind of, I miss, oh, yes. <laughs> and I, it made me, I just got a bit nervous. I just, I just found Porrick's journey so sad. I really did. And I was like, oh God, am I just going to be sad again for another? Because <laughs> when I did in Bruges, it was funny as anything and I had a great time doing it. But it was kind of, the character was suicidal and depressed, you know, and yeah. it was only, it took place over three days. So I was stuck in a kind of a three day vortex of suicidal ideation and depression for the eight weeks, you know, but I loved it. I mean, I just, I just loved it because what he had done was, you know, as I had intimated, he had he had taken a lot of the plot out. He'd taken all the gun shoots out. He'd taken he'd made it way less cool, way less rock and roll and punk. And by simplifying it and literally just making it the kind of existential journey that it ended up becoming by simplifying it and, and not having it as complicated a story. He just allowed himself to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the human condition and the issues and the elements that we all struggle with, you know, and that became the script that we shot last year, as I say. Yeah, it sounds like this version is much more vulnerable. And I feel like yeah, uh, when, totally. when we did when we did this uh, conversation with you and Emma Thompson, she called your character uh, like an, a walking heart or an open heart. And yeah. I just think that, that captures what he is so so beautifully yeah no it was it was it was really clear that martin went he has said himself publicly so i'm not letting any cat out of the bag that should be in the bag but he had gone through a little bit of heartache himself uh, um that i think he just infused the script with you know and it was just when i read it the second time actually when i read it the second the second version which i said i kind of the first version i was like oh no but when i read the second version it had a much 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 greater effect on me i mean i really i really felt it a lot more to be honest with you and i thought it was deeper and richer and more sad and more meaningful i'm alex schwartz i'm nomi fry I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm oh. really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 
2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? What's the right amount of socializing for you? And how do you recharge? Maybe you thrive around people, or maybe you need more alone time. Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash littlegoldmen today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash littlegoldmen. And I'm curious for you, because, you know, this character is just so open hearted in the beginning and vulnerable and, and not cool, as you said, did, did you, was there any part of him that was really difficult for you to kind of grasp onto when you were preparing? No, I mean, it's just the whole process is a bit of a blur, really. Um, yeah. yeah, we just, you know, the the great thing about working with Martin in film is that you're outfitted with a luxury that you don't ordinarily get when you're working on films. And that's three weeks of rehearsal, you know, so he gets the whole cast together and you get into a room and you, the tables are put together and there's a little coffee machine and a kettle, a kettle and a powdered coffee jar in the corner and some granola bars. And you just sit there and you, you read through the, you have your read through the first day with everyone there. And then you start pairing off and there's a schedule of who comes in at what time the next day to work on what scenes. And you sit down and you talk about the scenes and you read through them and you talk about them and you have your questions and you get some answers. And then you start getting it on its feet, as you can imagine, Rebecca, you know, so it's that, it's that kind of process. So there's over time a familiarization with the material and with the character that doesn't really have or certainly for me, doesn't really have any clearly defined stages, you know. I did yeah. find, I mean, I found, uh, yeah, I, I, I did find, I, I did find Porrick's journey, and I know it's only acting, but I did find his journey quite painful, quite sad, you know, I, I did. I think everyone did. We all, we all got pulled into, we all, and when I say all of us, obviously the cast, because that's your job, is to get pulled into whatever the emotional and psychological tonality of the piece is. But even the crew on this, and I think because, you know, the crew were all, bar Peter, our first AD, Peter isn't Irish, but but um, everywhere you looked, there was Irish men and women and we were, you know, the hair department, the makeup department, Orlin, Linny, they, stuff would be coming up, a scene would happen and and it would provoke within one of the crew members a memory and they would share it and it would invariably would be either a father, a mother, or a grandfather or a grandmother. And it would take them back to a memory. So it became a really personal experience. And I think the the sense of loss, the sense of community, the sense of the death of a friendship, all the elements that are explored within the film became very personal to everyone, both in front of and behind the camera. And that's kind of what I'm referring to when I'm saying that we had such an amazing time. It really was a highly unusually engaging experience, I think, for everybody involved, you know? Yeah. I'm curious with a character like this, is it easy to sort of move on when you rap or do characters stick with you for a bit? They stick with you just like memories in life stick with you. You know, they get they get parceled away, they get filed away. 
um, you don't turn your back on them. But yeah, I would certainly be thinking more about like any big event. You've been to a wedding of somebody you care about, a funeral of somebody you care about, a birthday party of somebody that you love or a child of yours. You you think about it more frequently the day after it, a little less frequently the following day, et cetera, et cetera. So a little bit like that, you know, I did I did think a lot about the journey that we had. And that's one of the interesting things in in the process of the last five months of being on the on the campaign trail, as they say, is that the memories of it have come back. And that's what I mean by we had this period of extended magic that we've been able to share with each other because we've all been talking about the... I did learn new things about the film through just listening to Brendan and Kerry talking about their journey and their characters, you know? So not necessarily mm-hmm. in shooting with them this time, but yeah, as you were saying on the on the road, just just perspectives they had on the work and on the material and lonelinesses that they may have felt during the process of shooting it and stuff. Um but all of the films, they all get they all get just packed away as as memories because they're, you know, if you're if you're an actor working in film and you've worked for 25 years, as I have, you're averaging, if you've worked at the rate that I have, you're averaging about probably between six to eight months a year away from home, away from your family, away from your children. You know, it, 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 there's a cost on them. There's a cost on you. I get that you're compensated financially if you're as lucky as I've been. I get all that. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the human experience of processing life as it happens to you. And so, so that point being a lot of my life, my just my experience of living has been on film sets and has been with crews and and extraordinary casts and and so th- i have a lot of profound memories and experiences that i've experienced through the lens of working as an actor in film you know as do my kids both my kids because they visit on sets and they remember times in in london and in new york and being at certain things you know yeah yeah and I think a lot of people are pointing out, and rightly so, that, you know, the last few years have been such an incredible run and sort of leading up to this year for you. I think, you know, The Lobster is one of my favorite films. Oh, ever, but that's I think, lovely. I just love that film. But it, it's it, the directors you've worked with and these sort of fascinating off-kilter characters you've played, you know, Killing of a Sacred Deer after Yang and off, obviously your work in Martin's movies. But I'm I'm curious at this point in your career... Have things changed with what you say yes to or what you say no to when it when it comes to what you're I mean, I don't feel they have, but there's there's been there's been, should we call it and there should always be for human beings and and artists and a natural evolution, of course. I find it I really do find it hard and, and I can be as introspective as the next person, but I, I find it hard to see what the change is from the outside because I'm so busy being at the center of my own change, you know? So yeah. Honest to God, I, I some of the films that I did, say, twelve or fourteen years ago, that that maybe didn't work. Some of them I did them with extraordinary directors. You know, films that are maybe would be seen as not having worked as well, perhaps as some of the films maybe in the last three or four years or five years. But they weren't they weren't bad choices. They weren't films, and they're not films I regret. But they weren't. It's just it's there's some alchemical aspect to making film that is really, really hard to get a bead on. And if anyone could get a bead on it, including extraordinary filmmakers, every film would work across the board. You know, yeah. so it's it's there's some kind of magic that takes place. Obviously, the most fundamental 
fundamentally important thing is are the words on the page. You know, the the yeah, the script is is just the foundation, of course, for everything that comes after. But there does need to be a lot of magic that takes place for a film to work. And my my process of choosing something I mean, sometimes I've went to work purely because I, I needed to earn the paycheck and that's been amazing and sometimes I've went because something means something to me and sometimes I went to work because I thought it was a career opportunity there's always a little bit of each and the other um, but by and large I'll either find myself just quite simply leaning my curiosity leaning into something or away from something it's it's pretty simple like that and I just I just kind of I just kind of followed the nose of my own curiosity and, and you know, I read after Yang and I loved it. I read 13 Lives and the importance of that story and how beautiful, how beautiful the world came together in, in such a fractured time. It was a gorgeous story. And I, I was a fan of Ron Howard since I was a child, you know, parenthood is one of the first memories, splash cocoon, you know, and then all the kind of more heady fare that Ron has done in recent years and got all those nominations for. So I've just been spoiled rotten, Rebecca, you know, but I go where my curiosity takes me. So we're almost out of time, but, uh, I'm curious, I know you've got the penguin now, but you're not formally attached to any other films that I'm aware of. Do you have your eye on something? No, I've got a couple of things that I want to. There's, I, there's another film with Koganada that I really want to do. Mm. Yeah, mm. something that he's uh, working on at the moment. I really want to do that with him. And then there's a film that I've been trying to, that myself, my sister Claudine are producing, and it's the story of that period between Norman Mailer and Jack Henry Abbott. Um, mm. And it's uh, Andrew Haig adapted and he'll, he'll direct as well. And I did a thing called The North Water uh, that nobody saw that was on AMC Plus. And I say nobody saw because it, it was a shame because we went up to the Arctic Ocean and we shot on boats in the Arctic for five weeks without land anywhere within 200 miles of us. And there was so much effort put into it, but it got kind of buried on AMC Plus. But Andrew's an extraordinary filmmaker. He did 45 years. Did you ever see 45 years with Charlotte Rampling? Mm -hmm. yeah. Did you see it? Incredible. Yeah, it, yeah, isn't it incredible? <laughs> so scary. Oh my God. <laughs> it's so sneakily scary. But Andrew yeah, Andrew yeah. wrote and directed 45 years and Lean on P. Anyway, mm -hmm. so they're the two, they're the only two things that I really you know, have on my radar, but they're not confirmed yet. But I'm I'm good. And now I'm just being in the present that I can't wait to get started on tomorrow morning on the penguin. Okay, now we get to share a conversation that uh, you and I, Rebecca, and uh, David Canfield and Richard Lawson had with our boss, Radhika Jones, who I know there's a lot of busy people in Los Angeles this week, but she might be among the busiest as the Vanity Fair Oscar party looms. Um, and Rebecca, you went to your you know first party working for VF last year, but I, I assume you find it as fascinating as I do just to kind of like get the glimpse behind the curtain that we work at Vanity Fair, but we don't see the way it all comes together the way that she does and, and the thought behind it and just how much goes into making this event happen. Yeah, I mean, last year was my first time attending, but I've obviously heard about this party for years and never been invited. So it really did live up to the hype. And you also realize how much work goes in to making a night like that 
move so smoothly and seamlessly. And, and Rudika definitely makes it look easy uh, with her team. But it was interesting to hear about how she pulls it off. Yeah. And the, and the thought she puts into not just like the logistics, but who's invited, like the reason the Vanity Fair party feels special is because the wide range of people you're getting, people who want Oscars, but people who have nothing to do with the movie industry at all, who are just kind of like fascinating people for those Oscar winners to then run into at the party. Those combinations are kind of what what make the magic happen. And as she says, kind of reflect the magazine as a whole. It's like like watching it come to life. Um, and Rebecca, you and I will be there. Uh, we're hoping that our feet don't hurt so much this year. I think Radika's got some good tips on on that front too. So I feel I feel like we're headed for a good night. Yeah, I think it's going to be a fun one. And I, I hope to get more food this year, as I mentioned to you, Katie. I missed out on the burgers last we'll, year. We'll team up and make <laughs> sure it happens. Uh, well, let's hear our conversation about the Vanity Fair Oscar party and more with Vanity Fair's editor-in-chief, Radika Jones. Well, Radika Jones, our fearless leader, um, thank you for joining us in what is a crazy time of year for us. And I Imagine also for you, as uh, we gear up for Oscar night and the Oscar party, how you feeling? Uh, I feel good, but chaotic. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a year. crazy, it's a crazy time of year. It's fun. It's very fun and it's all in the service of fun, which is great. But it is a little bit like experiencing childbirth where there's just a lot of effort that goes into it and then and then when it comes around the following year, you're like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of effort that goes into this. <laughs> <laughs> the party does not throw itself. Um, but no, it's 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 a super fun time of year because everybody's very um, excited to come out and celebrate. And that is great. Yeah, we're recording this a little over a week before the Oscar party. People will be hearing this on Tuesday. I think you'll already be in L.A. by, by then. But can you give kind of just insight for people listening about, like, what is happening at this point to make something as massive as the Vanity Fair party happen? It's not just you, of course, but what, what are the mechanics you're looking at right now? No, it's an enormous team. Honestly, what I'm looking at right now is a lot of the weather forecast. <laughs> 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 I mean, we have... As with any event, we have many contingency plans in place, but it's kind of easier if it doesn't rain. So, And, and of course, the weather in um, Los Angeles has been pretty rough these past couple of months. So we've been keeping an eye on that. Um, but no, of course, there are a lot of invitations to uh, send out and coordinate responses and um, wardrobe to plan. And, mm. um, and we do a lot of events leading up to the Oscars um, in with the film community. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the sort of larger Vanity Fair ecosystem during the whole week. So it's all the kind of planning things that you would imagine, logistics. And and luckily, we have a fantastic event team that has been doing this for a long time and is very, very detail-oriented. Because one of the things that I think really makes the party work is, is if you know, the, the gears move smoothly. And that's everything from kind of you get there, you know, or can you sort of move through even very, dull, this is going to sound very dull, but sort of field operation stuff like drop off and, you know, mm -hmm. it, how, how, how is the traffic rooted? And, you know, it's a very, very busy night in Los Angeles. And so, um, so we're thinking about all of those things. Yeah, the part I remember always seeing in the lead up is people managing parking passes and who arrives at what time and parks where and how many vehicles are in someone's group. Like it is nitty gritty. But like you say, if you don't do it, then the whole thing falls apart immediately. Yeah, no, it has to be choreographed. It's it's sort of symphonic. Um, everybody has their role to play. And yeah, that, I mean, that's what makes it fun. It's also great to work. I grew up 
my father produced music festivals. So I sort of grew up with this mentality of like there's a big event and and lots to do to make it happen. But the kind of satisfying and also and thrilling and sometimes terrifying thing is it has to happen when you say it's happening. <laughs> like, you don't, you know, sometimes as writers and editors, sometimes we can be like, well, that that editor's letter was due today, but I'm going to turn it in tomorrow. <laughs> but we don't get to do that with the Oscar party. It happens on March 12th this year, and that is when it happens. So there's a kind of adrenaline that kicks in, you know, when you have that deadline and you're working toward that common goal um, and everybody kicks into gear. It's fun. It's it's different. You know, it's part of what makes my job really delightful because there's a lot of variety about what we do. Like tomorrow I have a dress fitting, mm. um, which, you know, is it's not the same as editing in a piece of investigative journalism. <laughs> Different skill set. <laughs> I, I feel like the Oscars are my favorite event because it's the last stop for a lot of these people who have been on this trail for months. And the Vanity Fair party is literally the last stop for them, like after they've been to the show and all that. And I'm, I'm curious if you have like favorite memories from seeing people finally let loose uh, at this party over the years. I think that's so key for many people in Hollywood, it, it's it been a long year and, and it can be fruitful and very rewarding. But, you know, you're sort of following the film festival circuit and the award circuit and and sitting for magazine photo shoots and profiles and, um, you know, talking to peers and going through all the Academy events and everything. So I do feel like it's really special because at the end of that road, Everybody's excited to celebrate, but for many people, they're coming into the party holding an Oscar. It can be the pinnacle of their career. It can be the beginning of an incredible run. You know, it can be the best night in people's lives. And so to be able to witness that is really special. I remember in 2020, um, Laura Dern won her Oscar, and I think the party was also happened to be um, her on her birthday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, it was, so that was like a really lovely, you know, and she had been winning awards through that whole circuit. And so to see her with her Oscar on her birthday, um, I need to double check that. But that is my memory of it. It was it was just it's very joyful, you know, um, for all of those reasons. And sometimes they let you hold the Oscar, which is what I got to do for the... Uh, the <laughs> yes, Riz, I, Riz, I persuaded Riz Ahmed to let me hold his Oscar. He stayed close by, though. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It would be unseemly for me to be wrapped up in one of those stories about, you know, how the Oscar mysteriously goes missing on Oscar night. Um, so I, I didn't... But yeah, they're really heavy. You have to really commit to holding the Oscar. When people hold it above their heads, that's serious. That's a workout. So nobody nobody watching at home should take that for granted. I often tell people that it's the the below-the-line winners or the shorts winners who stay the longest and seem to be having the best time because they're people who might not have been invited to a ton of giant parties throughout awards season. They tend to work behind the scenes in a lot of ways. And, you know, last year it was the Dune crew who were just, like, having the time of their lives, would happily let you hold their Oscar. Um, <laughs> that's that's such an exciting aspect of our party for me, that if you got an Oscar, you're in. And, you know, they're really soaking up every moment of that. Mm-hmm. As they should. Yeah. It's great to see those below-the-line categories, the more technical categories, some of them. It, you know, it, at the end of the day, you win an Oscar, it's an Oscar. And it's awesome to see those people who, who, without whose skills, the movies as we know them would not exist. It's awesome mm-hmm. to see those people celebrate. 
Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. The party comes out right after our Hollywood issue, not by accident. You know, it's all kind of connected in the whole Oscar season. And Radhika, I was looking back at the editor's note you wrote for this year's Hollywood issue, kind of the idea of looking at a, a bright future in the form of the 12 people who are on that cover, who are all, you know, experienced in the industry, but had never been on the cover before. Do you go into the party or Oscar season or this time of year in general with kind of a theme or a, a sense of what is happening in the industry and in our culture right now? I think that every year... I mean, you all can speak to this because it's a it's a frequent topic of conversation for you. But every year on the film circuit and the award circuit is different because the movies are different. And, and they're tackling different themes and they're highlighting different performers and different types of performances sometimes. And there are heartwarming comeback stories and there are kind of surprise breakout performances. And so there's a lovely variety. You know, it's never the same year in film twice. And so it's never the same party twice, even mm -hmm. if a lot of people come year over year. Um, there's always, there's just a different spirit to it every year. And so this year, in terms of our cover, it was wonderful to cast that cover and feel like we were capturing a generation of stars who are already so accomplished, but also clearly have decades more in front of them to um, amaze and astonish us with their work. And and I feel a little bit of that spirit in the films that are going on right now. And then there are also some amazing stories around actors like Brendan Fraser and The Whale, you know, who's having sort of a comeback year, or um, Kihei Kwan. And so I always sort of look forward to seeing the final act of those story arcs as they unfold over the year. I mean, of course, the, you know, these are people whose lives have narratives outside of the film circuit. But um, but in terms of our party and the timing of it, you know, it's neat to see the kind of Oscar narrative come to fruition. Yeah, we can't spoil anything about this year's guest list, but often people who are on the Hollywood cover uh, make it to the party. And I just remember last year seeing Simu Liu, who was on one of our Hollywood um, covers, kind of standing under this light and he had this amazing pink suit on and the light had just hitting him exactly right. It was like he'd been beamed <laughs> down from the heavens and it was just like watching a star be born in front of my eyes. It was a, a thing to behold. I remember being a teenager and being sort of hyper aware of the Vanity Fair Oscar party, as I'm sure we all were uh, long before we worked here. Uh, so, Radhika, I'm curious what it was like when you sort of got the keys to it in a way and what it felt like to sort of understand what went into it and maybe what kind of spin you wanted to put on it and what it looked like when you were suddenly overseeing it. Well... I came to Vanity Fair just a couple of months before the Oscar party in 2018. So it was one of the first things that I did. Um, and so that was a lot. Um, but but it, it, was, it was really energizing, honestly, because sometimes the party can feel a little bit like the, the spirit of Vanity Fair brought to life. You know, it's based in Hollywood and obviously focused on a Hollywood event, but it also... Um, we also include athletes and 
musicians and people from tech. And, you know, there's a lot of overlap among those worlds. And so I host a viewing dinner with about 100 guests, and we all watch the Oscars together. And so to answer your question, it was it was just really delightful that first year because what I discovered is it's very similar to the kind of experiences that I had, you know, watching the Oscars growing up and going mm. to an Oscar watch party, except that this time I was able to watch it with people who really knew what they were talking about <laughs> because, they were, because they were also film directors and actors and, um, you know, and journalists and people like that. So, so to me, there's something very pure about it. It is a very celebratory event. There's nothing to do at the party but have fun. Hmm. Um, and it's something that I think everybody is ready to do. And now ha having, you know, we obviously couldn't have the party. We had the party in 2020 because the Oscars happened to be early that year. So, so we had the party about a month or six weeks before COVID shut everything down. But we, we didn't have it in 2021. And coming back last year and now feeling like we're coming back again this year, it's particularly joyful because I think everybody has realized what a gift it is to be able to come together communally um, mm. and that it's not to be taken for granted. And, you know, and the other thing that you that you realize is that is that uh, there are a lot of TV shows and films in production now and everybody's really busy. And it's kind of wonderful to see people take time, even people who aren't nominated this year or don't have an active project or something. Uh, it's fun to see people take the time to come out and see their colleagues and um, and see old friends and, and make new connections and stuff. It's kind of it's it's nice. It's. It's a long night for me, and so uh, you know, I, one of the things I learned the first year was that I have an optimal heel height for shoes, past which I should not venture. Um, and so those practical learnings are very important. But I, I also learned that the best way for everybody to enjoy the party um, is for all of us who are putting it on to also enjoy it, because that's really the point. Yeah, Rebecca, I feel like you've learned a lot from being on that Oscars red carpet for several hours before the show and before the party, uh, uh, the importance of makeup that stays in place and then maybe also footwear. I know. I think, Radhika, you're going to have to send me your optimal shoe height because I had I had a problem last year. I did not think that through, so I'm working working on it this year. Um, I'm curious if there's anything with the actual show that you're most either curious or excited to see unfold because I think it's a really unpredictable year, so we're all pretty curious what's going to happen. Well, I would like to know what you all think is going to happen. <laughs> I try. I actually, I'm one of those people who, if I'm reading a mystery story, I don't try to figure out who did it. I kind of just like to follow along. <laughs> um, so beyond my, you know, obsession with looking at the weather, I'm not really doing a lot of predicting. Um, I think it is a pretty open year, and I think anything could happen, and that's um, that's exciting. It's great to come into it like that. But I'm curious if you all have particular races that you're or categories that that are occupying your mental bandwidth. If you were here last week, you would have uh, overheard some spirited disagreement among this group <laughs> <laughs> over best actor. Particularly, uh, we're we're pretty split between Austin Butler and Brendan Fraser. Mm -hmm. so that's that's one. Yeah, the way things are going, the VF Oscar party could kind of be the second rap party for Everything Everywhere all at once. <laughs> I think they're going to get a lot of awards yes. uh, on the twelfth. Um, so that and they have brought yeah. a fun energy to every event they've been at for months now. Um, so I think we have that to look forward to for sure. 
Yeah, with everything you were saying, Radhika, about the party and what makes it so special, I just kept picturing in my head various everything everywhere all at once people with their Oscars and bringing the sheer joy that they have brought to every event Rebecca and I have been to, everything we've seen from afar. They have been the undisputed stars of the season, and uh, I think we're all looking forward to a triumphant finish there. I want to see Stephanie Shu dancing. I just feel like the energy she has brought to all the shows, like on our dance, because the, the dance floor is something that doesn't get that captured well in um, photos from the party. You kind of have to be there to see who's really cutting a rug. Um, and I'm betting on that group to to have a good time. Uh, so, Nika, you'll be in L.A. for a long time. As you said, Vanity Fair has a ton of events going on. Um, we'll be covering them on VF.com. We'll be talking about them on the podcast. Anything in Anything you're looking forward to in particular, maybe other than taking your shoes off at the end of the night, uh, early Monday morning? Oh, well, you know, we always, you got to have a good recap after the party. (laughs) We do that too, for sure. (laughs) I'll be calling all of you bright and early on Monday morning to recap. We can discuss who danced. Um, (laughs) We can discuss everybody's looks. Mostly right now, I'm just dreading packing. If I can just get packed, <laughs> pack my suitcase, get out there, then I, and then all will be well. You need to be able to travel with like an old-fashioned Judy Garland trunk with all of, <laughs> all of your gowns spilling out of it. That would be nice. That does it for today's interview episode. Uh, we'll be back later this week with our Oscar predictions, final predictions, whether we like it or not in some of these categories where it's very hard to choose. Um, and then just so you know, for next week, the day after the Oscar is very early Monday morning, we will manage to wake up and record our Oscars reaction episode. And then we'll not have a second episode next week as we regroup a little bit before kicking things back off the week of March 20th. Um, but we're really looking forward to talking about the Oscars and seeing how it all plays out. Um, please find us at VanityFair.com. Find us on Twitter at VF Awards Insider. That's Instagram as well. Please watch the live stream from the Vanity Fair Oscar party on YouTube and at VF.com. There's, I mean, Rebecca, you and I are going to be working for many, many hours to make it all happen. So I think we'd both be grateful if our little Goldman listeners read it all. And you can follow it, you know, our adventures out West. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Katie Rich and Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.